Hi, it's Isla Traquair, the storyteller on Murder Most Foul, and it's a rainy day, and I thought I would bring you some extra content because it seems that a few of you out there are impatient for the next episode. And um, with all these stories, there's always so much information, and this one is particularly complex. Um, so there's there's some interview clips that did not make the cut, and I thought, well, I'll try, and if I can every week and when appropriate bring you some of those um, interviews that didn't make the cut and also some comment to keep you satisfied in between the um, broadcasting of the episodes. I thought I'd begin this first bonus content episode with a little bit of the story behind why I'm doing this um, and how it came about. So I have lived in America for a number of years. I come home regularly and I was home in summer and I was listening to a murder podcast on the journey north from London and it just you know occurred to me I've covered so many crime stories in my career most of my career was in news and current affairs um, but I also um, worked on documentaries unsolved murder documentaries years ago and I've got so many stories that would lend themselves to being told in this way because I feel that podcasts offer a wonderful way to intimately share in in quite a lot of detail in a way that you just can't do with television or newspapers or I mean books yes but it's just it's a different format and I think this is a wonderful way to tell stories because whenever I did do a documentary or a news news item on a on a crime I'd always have people whether it's family friends or a stranger coming up saying now what about that case and I'd always have more information to tell them so anyway I thought right I've got all these stories that I've covered um and the first one I put into Google when I got to my parents' house was um, was Melanie's name. And I looked at the date and then I realised, oh my goodness, the 20, uh, the 20 year anniversary is coming up. I then tried to find a letter that Susan had sent me some years before. Couldn't find it, so I ended up um, Googling her husband and I found where he worked and I called him. And then, as you heard, he had to phone Susan and um, tell her that I was going to ring. But her reaction immediately was, um, after the hellos, her reaction on the phone was, yeah, yeah, I want to do this. So that's how it came about. So in episode one, you heard that very difficult story about the moment that it goes from, hmm, I can't get hold of Melanie. She's maybe taken on an extra shift to that panic and it's 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 a sudden change, and it's um it was hard to go back and ask her about that again. But obviously, it's a necessary part of the story. Um, but what you're going to hear in the future episodes, if it couldn't, I mean, you can't get much worse than finding out that your daughter's dead. But um, what what unfolds after that, it just it seems to get worse and worse, and it's a it's a hard story. But you'll hear she's such a determined lady, and um, I've been in constant contact with her the last week or so, preparing her for the launch of the podcast. And um, yeah, she's she's doing really well. If any of you've listened to some of my, or read my messages on social media, um, she wants to say thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and in particular, I want to thank everyone. I, I put a post up on the day of the launch, um, just one, just about Melanie and who she was. And uh, the amount of people who have looked at that post and commented on it is um, it's really touching. 
So the first clip we're going to listen to on this special episode is from Sandy Kelman, the senior investigating officer. And this will just give you a sense of the intensity of the investigation and the pressure that he was under as the, the lead police officer in guiding it. How did you feel when you uh, went home? Well, when you finally did get home or, or got some rest? Well, uh, when you're dealing with some of like this, um, as I say, I get called out during the evening and there's so much work to do. So I didn't actually get home until the following day, the Tuesday, and it would have been probably towards 11 o'clock at night. And for the next week to two weeks, um, you're generally in the office from the crack of dawn. I mean, usually maybe six to seven o'clock in the morning, and you're not generally finished till 10, 11 o'clock. Um, and when you do go home, it's difficult to switch off. Um, because your head is still buzzing with all the information you've accumulated during the day uh, and you're trying to run over in your head, have you missed any potential lead? Is there anything else you should be doing? So it is difficult and I'll be quite honest, I'm sure most senior investigating officers in these types of inquiry will tell you it is difficult ever to switch off and I mean you're pretty exhausted but the adrenaline of the inquiry and the desire to actually do as much as you can to find out who's responsible for something which is really horrific, um, not only for the family, but for the general public who are, if you appreciate, I mean, Aberdeen was a, a sort of medium, small, medium-sized city. When they hear that a young lady who is found dead in her own house, um, two you know, two, two things which immediately would concern them. I mean, she's a young girl with no obvious um, person who should be doing this to her in her own house, and she's murdered her own house. It causes alarm to the public, and people start getting concerned and worried. So you want to try and allay the concerns of the public. At the same time, you're desperate to try and help the family find out who could be responsible for this. So it is a difficult time. Um, it is a, a tiring time, but... It's a responsibility that comes with the job and you have to accept that you're paid to try and do the job and you're not doing it alone. I had a tremendous team, I had a, a, a huge team working with me on this inquiry and it wasn't down to myself but it does bring with, uh, an SIO does have to bear the responsibility as the overall lead in the investigation. So obviously this is a huge investigation for Grampian Police. Um, you'll hear people refer to um, the force formerly known as Grampian Police. It's now known as Police Scotland and the, all, the regional uh, forces all joined together. So it's now Police Scotland. But it was known as Grampian, uh, Grampian Police at the time. And the word Grampian is from the area of the Grampian Mountains, which is that northeast corner um, of Scotland. And um, yeah, there was about 60 officers involved in this case. It was a big one. It was also a very, very intense case for the forensic team. And I ask uh, lead scientist Chris Gannicliffe about uh, his role. I think a lot of people these days are very into the CSI and the silent witness. And how realistic are those programmes uh, compared to what you, you actually do? To an extent, in that some of the techniques and the processes are similar, what it can't relay is simply how you work in slow time and how methodical and systematic 
the examinations are. So, example, in Melanie's case, those examinations at the crime scene took a week, day in, day out, starting early in the morning, working into the evenings, then maybe going to a briefing with the police, uh, with their investigation team, eight or nine o'clock in the evening, getting back at 11 o'clock at night. So you'd routinely be working 18-hour days. That's Now, to relay that in a, in a drama is nigh on impossible. And as that happens, you're doing examinations during the day before the crime scene. Your colleagues are examining items relating to the crime. Back in the laboratory, those results are coming off the conveyor belt day by day. The priorities are changing because the police information changes. As different suspects come to into the spotlight and back out again, so constantly the police are asking you to move from that onto this other thing. Now can you move on to this other priority? So it's very dynamic and you can't really relay that. In a, in a drama, it tends to be there's a single suspect uh, and very much in, a, in the forefront. This is different in the sense that it was a whodunit and it's gradually unfolded. The other main person at the scene was, of course, Dr James Grieve, the pathologist, and he told me a bit more about what they saw on the body before they moved it down to the mortuary. And then, of course, the mammoth task that then awaited them. It, it would be natural just before moving the body from the locus. So as we've got maximum information, useful information at the time, one always tends to look at the, at the eyes uh, and the, the facial features and the hands. And there were a variety of small injuries on the hands, which we would and subsequently did interpret as so-called defence injuries which really are a hallmark um, of, uh, of homicide because people don't tend to defend themselves when they are taking their own lives and you don't defend yourself when you're the victim of an accident. We're, it's, it's unpredicted, therefore you're not, you're not ready to try and do anything about it. So these defence injuries, little incisions on the fingers, particularly on the palmer aspect of the fingers, which are the result of trying to ward off uh, an attack with a knife, grasping the knife, interposing your hands, which is a natural response to interpose the hands between what you see as the important parts of your body, so head and trunk, um, uh, between your head and trunk and the, and the, the knife. Then um, we, we have the body moved back to mortuary. Now, I think we were there... Um, we were there at the Locus, working away at the Locus until half past three in the morning of now the 12th, which is the Tuesday. And you know, we have the body transported back to Mortuary, which isn't very far when it's a city, a city case. Uh, and we would start with our real post-mortem examination um, first thing in the morning. In days gone by, and when I worked for my predecessor, we would have been to Locus, done what had to be done at the Locus, get the body back, and <laughs> if the body was back to mortuary by five o'clock in the morning, that's when we would start. Um, nowadays, there are many, many delays. In my day, I always felt for an hour or a couple of hours, better to stop, take breakfast, you know, and be ready, you know, to work all through the day, and we would. Um, now, some people may think that I was a slow pathologist. It's the way I was brought up. But I used to um, consider that a person who had sustained a single stab wound, st single stab wound homicidally, 
that that was a job that would take probably around eight hours. Now, that wasn't eight hours of just me. Uh, four hours would be of uh, collecting samples from the body, photographing all the injuries, and so on and so forth. Uh, these are because of the Scottish legal system and the need for corroboration. These are all done by two pathologists. So uh, um, we always called it two doctor here, but some people call it a double doctor. And as I say, eight hours probably for a single stab wound and add a half hour for every additional stab wound or other injury. So you can understand that when you have somebody with 36 or 54 stab wounds, and that, that's just not all that uncommon. Um, that's a long, long time. So I hope that's given you a bit more of an insight into just the huge amount of work that goes into um, investigating a murder scene. There's more to come in the next episode of what they actually found, and it's absolutely fascinating, horrifying and fascinating, but... I hope you found that interesting. I know the answers are quite long and involved, but it's a long and involved process. And bear in mind at this point in the story, Susan and her husband, Paul, they are still in Spain. They know that a body's been found, but they've not actually been told yet it's Melanie, although I think they obviously knew that. And Susan talks about her mother's instinct. She knew something was wrong with Melanie um, and she in her gut felt that it was not an illness, that it was something something had happened to her, someone had done this. So thank you for listening to this uh, bonus episode. I hope you found it interesting. And stay tuned for the next episode of The Storyteller. Murder Most Foul episode two is called She Made It to the Door. And for those of you interested, the, the beautiful music that you hear on uh, this podcast is by the wonderful composer Sean Williams, so check him out. And this piece of music's called Unearthed, and it is truly haunting. <laughs>